Welcome to another edition of Old School Guns, the podcast that tells you exactly like it is. And we usually have three parts of this. One is where we cover news that uh, is relevant to the gun culture. Number two is we touch on things that have been put out there by content creators, whether it be podcasts or YouTube videos or written magazines, whatever else, whatever it is. Uh, we'll, We'll comment on it if it's worth commenting on. And number three is really a favorite part of this, which is questions and answers, in which case I will do my best to answer questions that people pose to me. Now, uh, if you would like to submit a question or comment, you can email them to me at kbmakel at aol.com, kbmakel at aol.com, or leave them in the comments section of Podbean. like getting them, so other places I get them. I, I don't really get a whole lot that way. I get some, but I get a lot of just people just stop me and ask me stuff, and I'll, I'll just kind of write down what the question is and, uh, you know, go from there. So anyway... Any one of those three methods will work. So there you go. Uh, the first question, um, and, and this, you'll know why this is not in the question and answer part is, but people know that I speak a little bit of the Russian language. Not very well. I speak it ploha, poorly. Um, but I've always been interested in the culture. I've been interested in the weapons. It's always been a mysterious place. Kind of, uh, you know... I like that kind of Dr. Zhivago time frame, you know, and, and just all the, just what a mysterious and, and, you know, expansive and, you know, interesting place uh, it was. And, and it continued to be, even up through World War II and the, you know, the Cold War. It was a very, very interesting, something I just found very, very interesting. So naturally, given current world events, People ask me like I'm some kind of an expert, which I'm not. So, but I, you know, frankly, I'm really burned out on experts after the COVID thing and after some of the political talking head frauds I've seen on TV. Um, The question is, will Russia invade the Ukraine? And the answer is, no one really knows except Vladimir Putin. Vladimir is the only one who really knows. I can tell you why they would, and and perhaps why they won't. Um, you know, the bottom line is, it, it's there are people on this earth, and they're not Americans, but it's like Russians, Chinese, to a dis- extent Germans. Um, even in this day and age, they understand their own history. You know, we don't understand our history. We, we try to revise it all the time, and it's ridiculous. They understand their history. Second World War, Russia lost 25 million people. Well, that's the Soviet Union. I'll use Soviet Union and Russia kind of interchangeably, just as a slip of the, slip of the tongue, but you get what I mean. Uh, they lost 25 million people. Some of it was their own doing because, you know, Stalin wasn't exactly a, a humanitarian. Even when it came to his own people, he would he would starve some of his own people to do other things. So, you know, they lost 25 million people. That was a significant, a significant manpower drain and a societal upheaval in the in the Soviet Union. We, we don't understand that because we did not. Every family lost not just a member, but multiple members in many cases. 
the demographics of the whole country were kind of skewed because people who'd been born in the early 1920s, both men and women, mostly men, just weren't around anymore. You know, they just were gone. So there was this bizarre, you know, effect on the country. And it, and it, and it really got into their psyche, especially the leaders. So consequently, the Soviet Union breaks up in 1991, 1992, whatever it is. Um, Ukraine is at that point a notionally friendly country to them. They give, because of some agreements, they give all the old Soviet nuclear weapons back to Russia. Say, hey, take these. We don't want them anymore. You know, but over years, this whole thing has changed. You know, the somewhat benevolent government of Boris Yeltsin has been you know, replaced by a malevolent government of Vladimir Putin or Vladimir Putin. And, you know, it's the same thing has happened in the Ukraine, the the kind of, you know, squishy democracy that they had has gone much more nationalist and they've been flirting with NATO. Flirting with NATO in light of the 25 million people that the Soviet Union lost in World War II is seen as a, an overt security threat uh, to Russia. It just is. you know. It, and here's the demographic. About one in five people who live in the Ukraine are ethnic Russians. And the Russians believe, kind of like the way the Chinese believe and, and some other cultures, if you're a native Russian speaker, you, you basically belong to them. They don't really care what passport you have. You're, you're one of them. And they have a duty and responsibility and in some ways a right to exert some protection to protect you or to look out for you or to exert control over you. They just feel that. You know, they just feel that way. So there's about 20% of the Ukraine is Russian speaking. That is because, number one, some of them have always lived there. And then during the Soviet times, there was a diaspora. There were Russians all over the old Soviet Union because it was larger than just the country of Russia. So they're out there. Now, what's happening is um, a lot of the Russians that live in Ukraine don't want anything to do with this westernization and flirting with NATO. So they, on the border, they created this, this area of the Donbass, which is a kind of a place where a lot of ethnic Russians live, and they're basically fighting to leave Ukraine and join Russia, okay? Uh, a lot of Russians, I believe the vast majority of people in the Crimea were Russian, so they decided to go back. And Crimea had actually only been put in the Ukraine portion of the Soviet Union, the Ukrainian SSR, Sovietsky Soyuz Republic, this, the Ukrainian SSR kind of, for administrative purposes, just kind of took, had the Ukraine given to them in 1953. Well, now the Russians, they wanted it back and they took it back. So, uh, you know, it's kind of a complex thing. It's a European problem, complex thing. Um, you know, I don't know that you'll see a Panzer, you know, Blitzkrieg type attack that's going to take over Kiev. But what you might see is Russia formally recognizing the Donbass as an autonomous area and going in and giving as or as its independence and going in and giving it um, you know overt military aid you know just going in and saying yeah we recognize this is not part of the Ukraine anymore so we're just going to go in there and give them tanks and, and, and all the other good stuff that, that they need 
So that, that could happen. Uh, I think there's a lot of bargaining that can and will go on. And a lot of that bargaining will be if you let us, if you're Russia, you say you let us have the Donbass, you you basically recognize the right, the fact that we have the Ukraine, you lift the sanctions, Ukraine does not ever join NATO, and we'll leave them alone. There'll, there'll be some deal like that. There'll be some deal like that. That's what I firmly believe. Um, I don't think they're going to start a ground war there. That would be extremely costly, and I think it would be very unpopular everywhere. In Russia, certainly in the Ukraine, and certainly uh, everywhere else. But idiot politicians, and we have some, you know, we, we have a White House full of idiots. Uh, they've blundered people into war before, and, and they could start World War Three over this. There's, there's always that possibility. So, but I don't really think so this time. I just think it's, it's more, it, it feels more like a diplomatic crisis at this point, even though it's, you know, military troops building up and everything, it feels a lot more like a diplomatic crisis. So we'll see how it, how it plays out. Uh, the Ukraine, you know, it's easy to portray them as the you know, the ultimate victims and all this, the big country next to them is bullying them and all that. Ukraine is very corrupt as the, uh, you know, face it, they were the financiers for a long time of the Biden crime family. I mean, Biden, Hunter Biden, the influence peddling, crackhead, crook, um, you know, he was he was getting paid a million dollars a year by, by the Ukraine, basically. So, there you go. He's he's <laughs> they they have some conflict of interest there if you if you kind of catch my drift. So I don't think there's going to be a a real ground war there. And if there is, I don't believe the United States is going to participate. We've already said we're just kind of there to bolster NATO allies, which Ukraine is not. They're kind of a you know they have that partnership for peace freaking nonsense that these guys do so my estimate of the situation is that Russia will gain some concessions in return for security guarantees for Ukraine and probably the biggest concession they'll get is hey Ukraine will not become a NATO member you will not have an unfriendly notionally unfriendly nation or a nation allied with in in a different military alliance on your border and I think that's what it's going to come down to, um, you know, the, the analogy that I think of is, you know, how would the United States act if, let's say that 20% uh, of Mexico were English-speaking Americans, and all of a sudden there was a, they were becoming friends with a Warsaw, the, the country was becoming friends with a Warsaw Pact-type entity that was, that were foes of ours. They, uh, through the, the, you know, opposition leader in jail and got rid of all English-speaking media, uh, we would we would react very strongly to that in in many ways. You know, it's it's complete it's a complete you know fantasy scenario. But if you kind of look at it in that way, you kind of see, hey, that's kind of how. Um, that's kind of how Russia sees it. And and think, you know, the United States, we're the same way in some ways. If someone's a U.S. citizen, now if they're a native English speaker, we don't claim to own them or, or have to protect them or, or have influence over them. But if you're a U.S. citizen living in another country, 
the United States has an interest in you. Uh, look at Jonestown, Guyana. There was, you know, a thousand people there. They were all U.S. citizens. They left the United States, set up a little colony there. You could say logically on an international thing, hey, you know, we, we wash our hands of these guys. They, you know, whatever passports they have, they have, but they don't live here anymore. They're not part of our, our country anymore. But when all those people committed suicide, um, it was U.S. military, U.S. State Department, all these things kind of went in to clean up that mess because they were American citizens. And so if you extend that thinking to Russia and the Ukraine, it becomes a lot more understandable and the analysis becomes a lot clearer. But to put kind of a cap on this, understand that Putin's diplomacy and his, you know, at least implied threat of using the military is extremely heavy-handed. And, and really, it's pretty, for the most part, unacceptable. But I just don't know that we're in a position to, to, um, to really, you know, make this all better. Because, you know, it can't stay on the current trajectory. Ukraine cannot become a Western outpost and have the Russians be okay with that. It just can't, whether it's a military outpost or whether they're, you know, just become this, this uh, capitalist democracy that persecutes Russians who live there. Uh, they're just not going to stand for it. And, you know, the final thing is we have to decide as a nation, are we going to be the world's policemen or not? And, and I think the answer most Americans have is no. We cannot make every ill of the world better. In spite of the George Clooney's and all these other people, you know, there are times when the, the Hootsies are going are gonna to wail on the tutus. You know, that's just the way it goes. Nobody likes seeing it. Nobody wants it. Nobody likes seeing it. But you sometimes you're powerless or nearly powerless to prevent such a thing unless you're going to intervene here there and everywhere and uh, there's no stomach for that to intervene everywhere in the world just it just is impractical to do you know how does this affect second amendment well obliquely like every conflict anywhere the supply of commercial ammunition for hobbyists is would would dry up or become severely severely pressed so get used to ammunition shortages if something if something there happens and it's actually a conflict um you know and you can just draw it out for yourself there's just not going to be a lot of leisure sporting ammunition around ppu may not be turning out the 3040 crag the eight millimeter labelle and all this other stuff that we kind of need they they may not be doing that they may be cranking out stuff that they can sell to the belligerents which is what ammunition country uh, companies you know traditionally do so that's how it affects us to move on to something else um, this is not really second amendment directly related but have you seen this thing where the national archives has gone down to miralago and they found boxes of documents that should belong to them and they're making a big deal out of it like trump stole these documents and and all the rest of this and you know and, and the reason he stole them was for some nefarious purpose of destroying them or something which if that were the intent he would have already done but you know it brought me back to you know let's talk about presidents leaving office do you remember when the clintons left office and, and this is you know 2001 which is a long time ago 22 years ago now or 21 years ago now and uh <clears throat> 
If you remember the Clintons, they took not only, I'm sure, a bunch of papers that probably eventually wound up in, in you know, if he's got a presidential library somewhere. Um, I don't know that he does. Maybe he does. I'm sure it has an X-rated book section if it does. But anyway, uh, he had all the papers, you know, that usually a lot of these papers go to their library and all that. It's not... It's not a nefarious thing of trying to steal secrets. But the Clintons st stole, they stole, remember a bunch of furniture and paintings and you know, a lot of a lot of things that belong in the White House. They were like packing them up, even like apparently like a, a year before they actually left there, they were sending, sending some loot, some of this loot that they got out of the White House. Um, to their to their thing in New York, their uh, house in New York, you know. So I think it's I think it's very comical that uh, you know people are, are pointing their fingers because there's you know a few boxes of documents at Miralago when the Clintons were took out a few moving vans full of uh, you know U.S. national property uh, looted from the White House, and then remember. Their friend Sandy Berger, who actually, you know, he got the nickname Sandy Burglar. I think he's, I think he's deceased now. I think he died, but um, he actually went into the National Archives and was looking around for stuff that didn't portray the Clintons in the best light. Remember, he had them stuffed down the front of his pants and all this other stuff, stealing documents out of there, and he lost his security clearance and his access and all the rest of it. You know, is thievery. Now that that is a bigger deal, and it was just kind of laughed off at the time that, you know, here's some fool stuffing, you know, documents down the front of his pants. They laugh that off, but you know, a couple of boxes of documents get moved to Miralago, and and they they think it's the national crime. You know, it shows you how twisted, and really how bad the national media is and if you think and if they'll twist stories like this and not say hey you know this kind of happens when every president leaves there's always something that that should be sent somewhere else or there should be you know a lot of things get moved back to their residence and and they have to go through it and and some of this stuff has to go other places rather than saying that because we know about the clintons and i'm, I'm sure Probably George W. Bush was the same way. They probably packed up some stuff and said, nope, this actually needs to go back here or needs to go there. I'm sure Barack Obama, because he didn't really have very much when he came in the White House, so he probably got a lot of ashtrays and, you know, basketballs and all this other kind of stuff that he, he uses. Um, he, you know, I'm sure that they have stuff. I'm sure every president has probably has taken stuff inadvertently because they don't really pack it themselves obviously but i'm sure things show up at their residence in these boxes that come from the white house when they move out that probably need to go somewhere else so it's not that big a deal and the third news item which really only marginally kind of peripherally affects shooting is uh olympic cheating okay i mean given the debacle at the olympics the Summer Olympics. Remember, there was a there was a, a black lady athlete who wasn't allowed to participate because she'd failed a drug test. And now there's a 15 year old skater from Russia who failed, I guess, failed a drug test, and all the rest of this. And I mean, they they spend all of this huge effort trying to catch the cheaters. 
and of course I I the first thing I say is well if you're a 20 year old or 20 25 year old woman you should know what you're taking you're an adult you should know you're in training I'm not saying they do but they should but a 15 year old girl has no concept and they're telling her it's vitamins and she's taking it she doesn't know that it's a drug that will help her endurance she just doesn't know um, so I think the 15 year old kind of gets a break but it, it brings me back to this thing of what's a 15 year old doing in the Olympics anyway and I realize some figure skaters you know right between 15 and 18 that's where they're at their best but when you look at how countries and I say all countries are training these athletes it's <clears throat> I hate to say that it's just like the modern parallel of some sort of it's some sort of indentured servitude I mean slavery is too strong a word but it's indentured servitude it's like we're gonna take you train you make you famous and you're gonna win a medal for us we're investing in you you get a medal for us and uh, there's something really insidious about that um, something very very insidious uh, I think you know a 15 year old girl when she was training she was probably 12 years old and they probably said she doesn't have the endurance so therefore we'll juice her up on something that'll give it to her um, you know not only is cheating wrong breaking the rules wrong but she also is you know is her health being compromised and I would say that of all these Olympic athletes you know with the regimens they're on how healthy is all that now we think hey they're they're in real good shape and they can do this that and the other thing but is it really good for them and where some of this you know where a lot of this doping started I think it was in the 70s or 80s was actually with Olympic shooting when people were and I don't know who it is what the specifics were but some Olympic shooters were taking kind of drugs that would kind of mellow them out mellow out their heartbeat so that uh, you know the the gun didn't move very much you know that the interference of the heartbeat didn't um, move the the weapon and disturb the sights the minute I heard that the minute I heard that I said I wonder what about all the shooting contests that we see where people are participating and there are no drug tests you know the Olympics is the only I mean do they test for drugs at Camp Perry no <laughs> I mean do they test for drugs at USPSA nationals or any of these other things and the answer is obviously no so how do we know that this stuff isn't widespread in just the shooting competitions we have here because you know you, there is a lot of money at stake if you're a top shooter there's sponsorships there's you know team Glock and team Smith and Wesson and team God knows what else uh, you know it's about a living and our people ab and people are not above no one is above I won't say no one but most of the people involved in these types of activities whether it's figure skating downhill skiing or or shooting or or anything else you know professional baseball uh, none of them are above uh, using these things to get that edge to get that 
one or two percent or maybe even three percent edge um, and I can tell you from my competitive shooting that a shot that would score a six if you have three shots that score a six um, you've lost 12 points and 12 points can be a big deal in a score as opposed to if those three shots wind up to be tens or X's so uh, you know I'm, I'm just sure that there are people who are not above it I'm just sure of that um, you know so it'll be very interesting at, at a certain point you know do you just turn your back and say whatever people do they do because I don't know that you can have enforcement they, if the Olympics have a hard time enforcing it I don't I don't know that you know any kind of shooting matches which don't have near the kind of funding and support and and you know basically fan interest either you know there's no there's not a lot of spectator sport uh, things with shooting so um, I don't know that they're you know that they would seem to me to be way behind the curve and uh, you know are the you know and you have to kind of look at service teams and all that would they would they give their people something that they say hey this will relax you just a little bit I don't know I, I don't know because you know frankly it goes for the whole human race but certainly in our country the, the moral compass is has gone wrong and uh, I wouldn't be surprised if there's all kinds of stuff going on when there's money involved nearly anything can happen now talking about something a little more positive that is directly related to shooting um, for 6.5 Creedmoor I could not get a trim attachment for my Dillon case trimmer electric case trimmer because it is mine is too ancient I think mine's the model 1200 and they're up to model 1500 and they don't make the 6.5 Creedmoor trim die attachment for the 1200 why I do not know because it seems to me like that would be something they would do but anyway they don't so I you know I, I really don't I've tried to use the Forster one and I, I used to use that I've had one for for years and years but I've got one like a really old model of that too and I didn't want to invest in the goofy little pilots and all that all that stuff so I you know for my loading I think what I'm trying is called the world's finest trimmers uh, little crow gunworks LLC little crow gunworks dot com uh, I think they're up in Minnesota I've got their 6.5 trimmer and it basically fits in a cordless drill or a drill I, you could use a corded drill I suppose it chucks into a drill and you take your sized cases and you push them in and uh, squeeze the drill thing and it will drill them it, it basically works like a rifle chamber it um, it looks like the forward end of a rifle chamber and you can see where the shoulder is and all that and it indexes it all off of that measurement so um, <clears throat> I'm really looking forward to using this I think it's going to be great it's think with shipping it's like eight bills that's not cheap there is a thing on the uh, the internet on eBay called the world's cheapest trimmers which 
have a similar type of design uh, and they're about like 25 bucks but for 6.5 Creedmoor I decided I would go with a little crow and I may try one of those other ones for something that's a little less um, precise that I use like maybe 30 30 or something I'll uh, I'll use one of those other trimmers and kind of kind of do it I suspect that it the eBay $25 trimmer works but I don't think it will work as well or as precisely as the little crow as, as I look at the little crow um, it's exceptionally well made um, it really it, I mean the thing bespeaks of quality when you really look at it and look at the stuff that goes into it I don't feel that it's really overpriced for what it is it uh, it looks really nice all the you know it's got some holes in it for certain things let the let the brass shavings come out those are all beveled very nicely um, I'm pretty sure the other one is probably not nearly as does not exhibit that kind of finish or precision but this is a uh, this is a brilliant little uh, brilliant little device and I'm looking forward to using it so uh, stand by more to follow more to follow uh, okay we can now get into some questions and answers and the first thing is do you support the use of revolvers for quote-unquote the little woman um, I, I don't believe that gender has anything to do with the selection of a firearm and with that being understood I will also say that a lot of new or neophyte shooters happen to be women and sometimes it's like in my own family my wife did not grow up with guns did not own or use guns so when we got married all of a sudden there's there's you know a safe of guns so she does not prefer semi-automatic firearms she just does not like them and uh, you know that's okay because we all have things that we like and we don't like she prefers a revolver and I think there's some reasons for that and I'll kind of go into them number one I think revolvers you can look at them and understand how they work and everybody's seen the movies and hey you just drop a you know they kind of get the cylinder thing they kind of see that it turns you know the mechanism and I'm talking double action revolvers single action with cocking it of course they turn also but um, they're easy to understand you look at them and you can intuitively understand how they work and how to load that unload they, they kind of get all that semi-automatic you kind of put these rounds in a box you put the box in the grip and then you have to bring this slide back you know for most of us who are used to guns it's not really any different but for somebody who really is not that familiar with different firearms mechanisms it's it's a little bit more intimidating then you also have and here's why revolvers are a great choice for a lot of people um, especially some of the newer firearms owners who are women malfunction clearing is a lot easier and you say well how does how does that work well you don't have smokestacks and you don't have double feeds you don't have it where the the uh, uh, failure to feed failure to eject you don't really get double feeds in pistols but you can in rifles if you if you're not careful um, 
you know, there's a lot of things that can happen. And, and of course, understanding how to do the remedial action to clear those is, is somewhat different. With a revolver, it's usually if you pull the trigger and the cartridge does not go off, you can pull the trigger again and it'll index and bring up a, French, a fresh cartridge and, and fire. Very rarely, and I've never seen this with factory ammo. I'm not saying it doesn't happen, but I've never seen it with factory ammo. I've seen it a lot with hand loads, though. Uh, somebody will forget to put the powder charge in and the uh, uh, primer will drive the bullet in between the cylinder and the forcing cone and that takes there's no real quick fix for that you gotta you know put a rod down the barrel and tap it tap it tap the bullet out because there's no propellant behind it just the initial charge of the primer which is just enough to push the bullet forward and jam up the whole mechanism but if you're shooting factory ammo that does not happen um, I've never seen that happen not saying it can't, but I've never seen it happen. So people who say, well, but when a revolver jams, it's, you know, da, 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 da. well, I, I can tell you from shooting revolvers and semi-automatics for decades, your chance of getting a malfunction with a semi-automatic, even a Glock, or even, even everything that's not supposed to have one, is much higher because you've induced some other variables into the equation which is the magazine is the magazine serviceable is the round compatible with the magazine is the round compatible with the feed ramp of the gun does the round have enough power to fully cycle the action you know all those things are not a problem in revolvers but they can be significant problems with a semi-automatic so uh, to people who are unfamiliar with firearms just not having to deal with magazines and all of the inherent issues of dealing with, you know, the immediate action of a semi-automatic are well worth it. I would say just the magazine issue alone is well worth it. And what you're going to do is trade some capacity, but, you know, that's probably a good trade. And again, gender doesn't really factor in. It's really more experience and more dedication. I, I had a very good friend who um, guy had been quarterback of a college football team back in the day. And uh, so, you know, kind of talk about guns a little bit. And he goes, well, hey, I have a gun. And he did. It was like a Smith & Wesson Model uh, 10. A very pedestrian, very workmanlike, very excellent, you know, gun. But he knew it was a 38. <clears throat> he knew how to load it. He knew how to unload it. Uh, he knew how to fire it. Was not a great shot with it, of course, because he never practiced. But, you know, he was competent in using that firearm. You hand him a Beretta 92F or FS. Um, is he going to have that level of, of uh, um, proficiency with it? And the answer is the probably no. He could develop it, but, you know, he's not a gun guy. He chooses not to. So the, the reality is... There are people who need to use a firearm, need the security of a firearm, and they're not necessarily gun people. And they're not necessarily going to dive into the, um, the hobby the way the rest of us have. And for these people, I tend to think, and, and I don't push this on anybody and I don't do that, but I tend to think 
that if you're going to be just a very occasional firearms user owner and you look you've learned the safety that's the most important thing but also you know you need a gun that you can understand and use and manually operated guns whether it's a shotgun whether it's a rifle or a handgun have some advantages and you think about this hey if I have a pump-action shotgun and I kinda know how it works I know how to load it I know how to do that but I'm not I don't take it out all the time hey um, if I pull the trigger and it doesn't go off either because I haven't chambered a shell or because there's a dud shell inside it which again doesn't happen really with factory ammo but it could potentially happen but you know have reasonable factory ammo you're not going to do it uh, you know they know to basically pump the gun again and that will either eject the bad shell or it will put it in a position where it will actually feed the shell coming up out of the out of the magazine so uh, you know that's a lot better than them trying to figure out well this thing has got a stovepipe it's got a failure to feed and now the shell which is loaded is kind of poking half out of the ejection port what do I do well you know we know what to do as gun people but someone a lot less familiar uh, it's gonna take them a lot longer so they're better off with a manually operated like a pump God. for my wife um, there are a couple different choices but the guns she feels most comfortable with are manually operated whether it's a lever gun uh, whether it's a pump action she got a tw pump action 22 which is awesome I mean it's easy hey if it doesn't go off and you know sometimes 22s you will find that occasional dud in the uh, the deal uh, but you know the, the beautiful part of that is hey you just pump it again and he goes you know it's easy to load you don't have to the nice part is pump action 22s are almost always tube loaded so yes you cannot reload them the empty tube quickly but people who aren't that familiar can load that tube better than they can load the magazine and if you've ever seen someone put rounds in a magazine backwards you'll know what I'm talking about and I've seen it over and over again you know and it's not that people are stupid it's just that they're not familiar with it and it's a mistake they make because they don't have practice and they're a little unfamiliar with what they're doing and now they may be safe gun handlers all the way around I've seen it on military range I've I caught a guy loading M16 rounds <laughs> into a magazine backwards you know you, you see it all the time um, it can happen I've seen people people have done it with M9s so you know and and these are usually not gun people they they well they're I won't say they're usually not gun people they are not gun people and uh, it's easy to make that mistake so you know when I recommend somebody use a revolver it's usually based on kind of take them out let them shoot different types of guns and seeing what they are most comfortable with because what they're most comfortable with they will probably use um, the best so that's that's why I mean hey if it's you know if a pump action 22 or a lever action pistol caliber carbine is the gun you're most comfortable with it's better 
than the jammed AR or AK or anything else that somebody can come up with. It just it just is. And I'm not saying that that is also a plateau that people reach and can never get off of. Maybe that's just their first couple of guns and they're able to practice and develop their skills so that they will move to more what we would consider more efficient firearms. Maybe a semi-automatic pistol caliber carbine replaces the lever gun. Um, you know, and go from there. And then, then, you know, eventually getting into intermediate cartridge firearms, which which are, are you know, very, very efficient, high capacity and everything else. So same thing with handguns. Uh, you know, I've seen very tiny women shoot 45 ACPs like they're nothing. And I'm sure they could. I, uh, I had a friend who shot a uh, Desert Eagle. So, um, you know, it can happen. It, it can definitely happen. But, you know, a new shooter to pick up a Desert Eagle is probably, uh, you know, prescriptive of disaster. So, anyway, that's, that's kind of why, you know, when people start out, maybe, you know, just laying down the credit card and buying the coolest gun in the cabinet may not be the best thing for them. So, anyway, that's why I tend to think revolvers and manually operated guns are really excellent for beginning or you know shooters that don't want to get into other levels of complexity so the next question is what do you think of cartridge conversions for colts walker and dragoon cap and ball pistols actually cap and ball revolvers pistol is probably not the best word to use there, but cap and ball revolver is. Um, what I'm going to say will gore some sacred cows, you know, or gore sacred ox, whatever that expression is. Um, they're great and they're fun. I like shooting them. I think they're awesome. However, um, I'm not a big fan of cartridge conversion for black powder cap and ball revolvers uh you know if you really want to shoot cartridges out of an old west gun there's so many other choices um that are actually made with even the even the new steel that they put in say a new birdie colt walker or uh, colt dragoon the uh, copies of them are they're still they're still not up to the standard of a modern sporting smokeless powder say 45 cold so how is that important well it's only important as because there are ammo manufacturers out there that have plus p and god only knows plus p plus 45 cold stuff or god forbid somehow a 454 casal gets into one of these things um you know i, I, I tell you what my I saw this happen one time, and fortunately we caught it. But a guy had an 1858 Remington, probably I think it was a Pieta. He had a conversion cylinder, and this guy was just not that bright anyway. This, and you'll know why. Um, he he basically, and you look at the the amount of steel between those cylinders, and on the Remington is just paper thin. I mean, just I, it, it's really amazing how thin. 
uh, those things work. But he had that, and he had some HSM 300 grain plus P bear loads. It even said bear loads on the box. And he was trying to fit them in. And fortunately, the bullet was so long, and this was at an Old West revolver match, of all things, the bullet was so long it actually wouldn't chamber. It, 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 it would go in, but the bullet was too long. And so he had decided, well, there's a fix for this. He started whittling the bullets down so that it would chamber. Now, all I can tell you is that this is prescriptive of a grenade. I mean, that the frame of that gun was never designed for 45 Colt pressures, much less the kind of pressures in a plus P bear load with a very heavy bullet. And, uh, you know, and then you go to the cylinder, which has got these paper thin cylinder walls, because actually, if you, if you uh, know it, the, the 1858 Remington really isn't a good conversion candidate to 45 Colt because um, they actually have to drill them in at angles. I mean, there's there's all kinds of you can Google it and see why it's a uh, kind of a nightmare. But they've made them, and and if you shoot, you know, very modest trail boss loads in it, you're fine. But it was never designed, obviously, for what he was putting in there. But people don't understand that you know hey they say this is 45 colt hey that's 45 colt ammo and that's the coolest ammo in here and therefore i'm going to use it um it, it was a grenade and fortunately uh he was prevented from <laughs> exploding it so that's all i can say I, I don't really like them there are some custom gunsmiths who who turn out you know custom wall if you want something like that i think that's great but it's they become hand load propositions and you know it's 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 pretty good i i myself like 45 colt and i have a um i have a ruger blackhawk and it's also got a 45 acp cylinder and i find that that scratches that itch for me pretty pretty well so um the other ones i just keep as cap and ball because I, there's kind of a magic to cap and ball i kind of like that so anyway that's that's what i think of those uh the walker and the dragoon you know what I'll, I'll say one other thing I'll say one other thing. The, the Walker and Dragoon are not good belt pistols. I mean, uh, if you've ever tried to put one of those in a holster, um, uh, unless you have the kind of a holster like they use for something large, like a Desert Eagle or, or some of the larger Super Magnum pistols, you know, 480 Ruger and, and uh, 454 Casal and, and uh, some of these... Unless you have a, a holster that can kind of accommodate a pistol like that, uh, if you try to use a traditional Western style um, holster, they're very uncomfortable. They're heavy. <laughs> you better better have some suspender, good suspenders, because they're going to yank your, put your pants down around the, the top of your cowboy boots. Um, it's a heavy gun. Walkers and the uh, Dragoons were really carried a lot in pommel holsters, you know, on the pommel of a saddle. So... You know that that kind of tells you right there that, uh, <laughs> that they are they are big big heavy guns. Now, since I like big heavy guns, I love them. You know, I mean, uh, I got a Walker for it was actually for Valentine's Day several years ago, and I just love the gun. It's beautiful, but uh, I don't really want to change it to cartridge. Okay, here's our next question. What is your opinion of the 444 Marlin? Well, I I like the 444 Marlin. Um, 
I shot one a long time ago. It's, you know what it is. For years, you know, starting, I think it came out in the 70s, but for years, you could not get um, a lever gun in 4570. So Marlin came out with a 44, the 444, which was a, it's basically a lengthened 44 Magnum, and it kind of is very rem. It's in the very same style as say a lever action um, 4570. So you, if you couldn't get an 1886, which you couldn't unless you got an antique one, in 4570, you could get a modern Marlin in 444. Um, and for guys who who had the use for that, uh, it's it's a great cartridge. You know, it's kind of heavy woods. You know, short range. You know, want to hit something big. I mean, if you, I guess, if you wanted to shoot a moose or, or uh, a big, a big deer. You know, fairly close range. You know, hundred yards and under. Um, it's an excellent, excellent uh, cartridge for that. Longer range. I'm not sure how it really works, but uh, um, and I'm not a hunter, so I, I've never followed how it's ballistically it does. But it's kind of like any lever gun. You know, those those things are limited to about. What do you think? Maybe 200 yards and in. You know, really realistically, that's that's kind of what it is. And it's a big thumper. Um, it's hung on over the years. I don't know if they're currently making it or not, but it's hung on, and, and you can still, you know, again, it's it's one of those ones that it's hard to find brass for. Um, bullet selection. You know, the pistol bullets aren't really going to work very well, so uh, bullet selection can be a problem. Um, you know, it's but it's it's good. I mean, in the day when you couldn't get the 45, 70, 1886 anymore, and hadn't been able to get it for 40 or 50 years, uh, you know, it kind of filled a, it kind of filled a gap there. So it was pretty cool. So that's what I think about it. Is I I don't know if I if I saw one for sale super cheap, I might be tempted, but in reality, I would probably it'd probably be a hard pass because. Uh, I don't really want to fool with the cases or the bullets, so that's kind of what it is. Um, I, you know, and one more thing is a lot of those Marlin rifles in 444, I do believe, have the micro groove rifling, which can sometimes be a crapshoot. Some shoot cast bullets great, some don't. Um, micro groove kind of tells you small groove, and that's not really what you want for a cast bullet, but. Um, you know, some people report that micro groove barrels shoot cast bullets fine. I I don't know. So anyway, that's that's the other uh, thing I'll throw in with that. Okay, then here's the it's the same question only it's with 3855 Winchester. And I have to plead ignorance. I've never fired one, but I've always been intrigued by it. Um, it was kind of a. I think it was actually introduced as a smokeless powder cartridge, but it's really reminiscent of kind of a black powder cartridge. And it's a very cool, very cool cartridge. It's very cool in 94 lever guns. And I think that's mostly where you see it. You can't see it in some single shots. Um, some guys who've, who've, you know, they run across a rolling block action, they'll put a barrel of 38.55 on it. And... Uh, you know, pretty, pretty, make a pretty cool uh, kind of a target Remington rolling block out of it, or even a hunter gun. I mean, it would be fine for for both purposes. But yeah, it's it's um, 
a, a cool caliber, kind of a straight walled lever gun caliber. Um, yeah, it, I've never fired one, and and again, finding brass and bullets is going to be a bit of a chore. So and loading data. That's the other thing. You know, a lot of times these cartridges that have fallen out of favor uh, and we're never really all that widespread the the loading data for them is a little sparse it just isn't out there this the body of data just isn't out there um, witness the 1907 Winchester <laughs> that uh, that I seem to love but you know man I I don't even fire it anymore because number one it's hard on brass and number two it loses brass and you know it's one of those things I, I would take it out on a very special occasion or something but I'm gonna have somebody standing right there picking up the empties because um, you really can't make them efficiently from anything else yeah no I've tried 556 five, it doesn't work if, if I had more metal working ability I might be able to get something to work but I really don't you know they have um, I forget what the one is 357 maximum where you're supposed to you know you cut it down and you have to cut a groove in an extractor groove in it and then you have to to mill down the the rim of the cartridge you know I just sit there and yeah that's too much that's too much for me can be done but really can't be done by me I really, I, I could do it I think but I just don't have the equipment so that's that's a deal. But thirty-eight fifty-five is a cool cartridge. I'd like to see it make a comeback. I think uh, you know that's the other thing that kills it is that uh, there's no cast cowboy action shooting. There's no there's no vehicle that would bring it back. And face it, uh, there's so many different hunting cartridges out there. Unless you just really want to hunt with an old time cartridge, uh, there's no real reason for it. So. You know, the guns that survive the best and get the most components and everything else are ones that are used in some sort of competition. You know, cowboy action shooting being a being a prime example. And since they don't use these, they don't they don't get used. So that's it. Uh, next question. How do you know if it's safe to shoot smokeless powder loads in an a particular antique firearm? Uh, very difficult question. What I will generally tell you is stuff made in the late 1890s is usually pretty good. It's made out of steel. They knew smokeless was around. They knew the ammunition would be smokeless. Stuff earlier than that, I would stick with black powder or black powder substitute. Um... You know, even though my 73 Winchester is a gun with a steel frame, it's not iron anymore, it's steel, but it's not really proofed. It was made in 1888, so, you know, it's not going to be uh, ready for smokeless powder, in my opinion. I think Colt single actions, you know, you see a variety of dates on those, but if it's if it's a Colt single action made before 1905, I would probably be careful. But you can look it up. I'm, I'm sure at a certain point they said these are good for smokeless powder. So um, that's just how that is. Anything made after 1900 is probably safe. Um, I shoot a 
a Marlin 3840 that was made about 1910, 1911. Um, smokeless loads and it's no problem whatsoever. So the the other smart thing you can do is use if you're going to use smokeless, use Trail Boss. You know, just that kind of thing. But yeah, you have to be very careful of uh, you know when a gun was actually okayed by the factory that made it for smokeless powder so that's a really good question and there's no hard and fast answer i would say anything after 1910 you're safe you're totally safe i can't think of any black powder gun that was made gun that would have been exclusively for black powder after that excluding of course copies of earlier guns you know obviously even if it's a modern cap and ball revolver a modern made one you you cannot use smokeless powder we're talking cartridge arms here anything that takes loose powder is is no go a no go with that um, you have to use a black powder black powder substitute but for modern cartridge guns i'd say after after 1910 you're totally safe after 1900 you're probably safe and before 1895 I would be very careful. I would, if, if I had a gun made before 1895, I would not shoot smokeless powder in it. Even the, even though some of the manuals have it. Uh, 18, here's an, here's an excellent, here's an excellent example. Um, 1873, 1884, and 1889 Springfield trapdoor rifles all get black powder or black powder substitute cartridges. Uh, I know that there are some trapdoor safe loads out there. Uh, I stay away from them. You know, pressure, all those things. I just stay with what it was, what the makers of it would understand would be shot in it. And I think you're the best off that way. What are common range mistakes you've seen made? Uh, I'll, I'll go buy the safety ones because everybody talks about that and with senior alec baldwin who's being sued by everyone on the planet now for the stupidity on the rust set uh, you know everybody kind of gets the rules of of gun handling and what you can point a gun at and what you really can't so i will say that um, the biggest mistakes i see people make is fail failure to lubricate their guns and with some guns you can get away with this with revolvers you can kind of get away with it because they don't they operate in a different manner but um when we were doing red dawn kansas had a guy who had his uh, makarov pistol was malfunctioning it the the problem with it was and this is a makarov pistol this is soviet design you know and soviet designs are never supposed to jam under any circumstances um but this one was and here's how it was it, it was fit very well it's a very, it was a very good quality gun but the temperatures were cool because we do this in january and uh i don't know if that had a whole lot of um i don't know if that had a whole lot of bearing but normally when i see a pistol malfunctioning where it's having failures to feed I, I tend to think it's a magazine. I examined this gun. It was not the magazine. And in fact, if I if I rack the slide, it would chamber. So therefore, I think it's limp wristing, where, he's, where the shooter's anticipating recoil and breaking the grip on the gun. 
has nothing it's not an unmanly thing they call it limp wristing just because your wrist goes limp that's all and and the gun doesn't have a stable platform with which to operate from but it, that didn't seem to be the problem either what was the problem was there was absolutely zero lubrication on that gun and after three or four failures to feed it actually started working and I attributed that to having you know the carbon from expended cartridges working its way back into the action just enough to provide enough um, I hate to say lubrication but that's really what it was doing but the carbon the carbon kind of got back in there and and smoothed everything up so the problem was the problem was solved I've seen this with a lot of other guns too especially ARs guys just take it out of their gun safe take it to the range it's like did you put any lubrication on this I can tell usually I go up and hey wow that's a nice looking gun you just look at it and see if it's lubricated or not you just look at it and they'll and, and time and time again I'll see them bone dry and uh, that's a common range mistake you know that's that's just something a lot of times these guns will function bone dry but you know really uh, lubricating a gun is really the way to go you got to do that other mistakes and I've seen it time and time again and I've seen it at matches uh, I shoot in a lot of matches that are just kind of for older guns and things this is not USPA experience or anything although I imagine it happens there too um, people show up with ammunition they've never fired before out of a gun that they don't have zeroed now what what possesses them what on earth possesses them to do this I, I don't know but I've seen it happen time and time again and I've even seen a few experienced people just you know they figure well I I'm a good shot I can you know I can make this work I might have to Kentucky windage it a little bit but I've seen this over and over and over again and uh, I just sit there it's it just absolutely wonderment to me that uh, that people will do that because they have no idea where their gun is shooting had they taken a, just a small portion of their ammo and just kind of confirmed a zero or something they would have probably stepped back and said hey maybe this isn't the one to use or I'm going to be wasting my time tomorrow and that's what it comes down to is at the match when your stuff is incorrectably malfunctioning or hitting somewhere else or doing all these other things then you know it just doesn't you're wasting your time you've wasted your time and your money so that's a big part of it another another interesting thing is and I see this you can see this with all kinds of ammo it's mostly typical with the uh, steel cased stuff and it's not the AK ammo it's really not even the uh, 762 by 54 but it's like the 9 millimeter the 556 and referencing back the uh, the 9 millimeter Makarov you know when you get this in, in the Eastern European uh, ammunition they will uh, if they can save a tenth of a grain of powder when they're producing millions of rounds that adds up and that's all profit so they load some of that ammo I and I would say that the 556 the 9 mil and the um, the other stuff is the same um, 9 millimeter Makarov and 
few of these and I'm not talking surplus I'm talking about the commercial stuff they're making now it's loaded to be just functional it's loaded to function but it's not powerful it's a it's a standard load kind of minus <laughs> it's a nine millimeter instead of plus p it's a nine millimeter minus p <laughs> and and you know people can can chronograph it and figure all this out but i think and maybe it's just some batches are turn out a little bit uh a little bit low, lower powered but that that can cause malfunctions too it's not powerful enough to work the gun and uh, I think that was part of the problem with that Makarov I was talking about earlier. Um, and I've seen it. 5.56 will usually run. Um, you know, a few other things. The 9mm Parabellum will usually run. But um, you can tell the power difference is, is not there. And I have some guns that just... Uh, I have one Browning High Power that will not run steel-cased ammo. I don't, I don't know why, but it won't. Uh, it just doesn't like it. So uh, it's amazing, you know. And that is, that happens with guns all the time. I had some 9mm uh, lead bullet loads, cast bullet loads that I made in one Walther, well, yeah. It was a uh, Mauser P38, World War II manufacturer. Shot great and functioned 100%. I put it in a um, a an AC forty two P thirty eight, you know, really for the most part an almost identical gun. I mean, and it didn't it didn't it didn't shoot very well at all. Not only did it not shoot well, but it didn't want to eject. It would it would uh, um, had all kinds of issues. And, running out of time here so i can't go into all the issues but stuff that worked perfectly in one pistol in a nearly identical pistol it was unsatisfactory and that that can happen that can happen so you know you do have to be careful that's one thing hand loaders have got to get kind of through their head that sometimes if you tailor something for one gun it may not perform nearly as well in another gun so that's a uh, that's always a a uh, variable that's out there you know a gremlin that can that can jump up and bite you but anything you don't test anything you don't prepare is a uh, uh, uh could be a quagmire um you can never assume that the ammunition without testing it that the ammunition is going to perform perfectly in that firearm and you can never uh think that that and Two firearms, even if they're identical, will operate the same way with any given set of ammunition. They might, and a lot of times they do, uh, but you can never count on that as given. And I would certainly never go to a match counting on something that I have not personally fired, tested, and all that. And uh, I will leave that there. There is a lot of preparation people should do for matches or even just a trip to the range that can uh, save them embarrassment and heartburn when they're out there. But anyway, this is it for this edition of Old School Guns, episode 128. And uh, again, go back to the beginning if you want to uh, uh, send me some questions or comments and you can get the email address. And until next time, this is Old School Guns, out. <laughs>